Welcome to the Multi-Passionaire Podcast. My name is Olivia Martin, and this is episode 18 of the Multi-Passionaire. In today's episode, Jill and I dive into the various facets of electrochemistry. Jill doesn't just live by one title, but is a physicist, material scientist, engineer, and entrepreneur. She got her master's in material science and engineering from UC Irvine and her bachelor's in physics from California State Long Beach. Jill is a senior staff scientist at Innovate Corporation, where she develops lithium-ion battery technology. We're going to be talking about electrochemical technologies such as lithium-ion batteries, the advancement of energy materials, and obtaining patents on inventions. I'm with Jill, and we're going to kick off with a question that I ask each guest, and it's the million-dollar question. So what's an idea or a passion that you've had and you've always wanted to embark on and create, but you haven't done so yet? Oh man, I honestly feel like right now I'm doing all the things that I've wanted to do. Um, so I recently started the STEM Thrive Guys, which is an online courses that are teaching how to navigate bias, harassment, and discrimination at work and school. And if I had a million dollars, I would definitely put a portion into that. I have some great ideas to expand it further, but right now I lack the resources. So I'm, I'm just slowly building it out right now. And the second thing I would spend it on is more musical equipment. I'm recently getting back into making music. And so I'm like, my stuff is kind of out of date. I would love to upgrade my setup. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. I was looking over your STEM Thrive guides and I have some questions on that later. But it's super interesting how you kind of just have taken the knowledge and like experience you have and then have put that into like a resource people can utilize. Yeah, thanks for saying that. Yeah. So I really want to like dive into how you got involved in like interested in material science and engineering. So what made you want to become a battery scientist? So I actually started studying physics as an undergrad and I really loved physics because it just helps you get in touch with nature better, I guess, like helps you understand how the universe works. And I was led into physics through music, actually acoustics. But as I was doing research in different labs throughout my undergrad, I had one or a couple instances in particular, I found myself, I really loved electronics. And in an electronics lab, and a professor invited me to do research with his group which was a nano optics lab using a apertureless near field scanning optical microscope, which is a mouthful. But basically with that, we were looking at fuel cell materials. So I started reading about fuel cells and energy. And I was like, wow, like materials are so fascinating. And then an opportunity came up to intern at NASA Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena doing fuel cell research. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I have to do this. And I did, I applied and got accepted. So I spent my last year of college commuting across LA traffic three times a week to work in a dusty basement, doing like electrochemistry experiments for fuel cells. And let me tell you, I knew I was having the time of my life. And not everyone I think works in a dusty basement without cell phone service and goes, I love this, but that was me at that time. The person, the mentor I was with at NASA, he had his PhD in material science and engineering. And I loved how he talked about materials, how he had just had neck surgery and had like a PET implant in his neck. And just, he would go on and on about the properties of PET and why it's better than titanium. And I was just like, 
what are you talking about? <laughs> I knew that I wanted this more in-depth knowledge of just the materials that I interact with on every day, like throughout our whole day, touch so many objects. And these are all basically designed by material scientists. I had wanted to go into like astrophysics, but to me, the stars were just like too far away. I wanted something that I could touch here and now. And then when I started graduate school, I decided since fuel cells weren't quite commercially ready and batteries were already being put in vehicles and stuff, I decided to go into battery research was where I wanted to go. And that's where I am now. Yeah, that's so neat. You bring up JPL because I mean, a major thing that all of us must have like watched upon was like perseverance. Yes. And like that was recent and it was so neat just watching like the discovery and like accomplishment. So that's super cool. Like you worked alongside like JPL and everything like that. Yeah, it's an incredible center. And I learned so much there. It's it's the kind of culture where you can just walk around and ask anyone what they're working on and they'll tell you everything. That's the beauty of like government research is it's not as private as industry research. So it's, I really enjoyed my time there. So I want to dive into electrochemical technologies and kind of just the various facets of electrochemistry. I know a general basis of like chemistry and physics, just what I take in like undergrad, but could you kind of speak upon like the basis and like the purpose of like electrochemical technologies? Sure. So electrochemical, let's break down this word first. So electrochemical. So you have electricity and you have chemistry. And what's amazing is we like before I knew what electrochemistry was, I had taken chemistry in like high school and it was like, okay, you have chemical reactions, la-di-da, which is really cool, but that's that. But then when you add potential, when you add electricity into the equation, you're changing the energy of the system. And so if you add more energy, you can get different chemical reactions to take place that otherwise may not take place if they don't have that extra energy, that extra voltage or potential electricity in the system. So electrochemical technologies, there's multiple different kinds. Uh, you've probably heard of fuel cells, batteries. There's some like electrolysis, water splitting, hydrogen generation. And then you have our brains and our bodies. Our bodies are actually electrochemical systems. And if you talk about electrolytes, like you have to hydrate, you have to drink your electrolytes, right? Right. Electrolytes are also in batteries and in fuel cells. And an electrolyte is just something in which transports an ion. And so we need ions in our body to stay hydrated and balanced. Like our, our neural processing of our brain consists of different like potassium channels and all the, I'm not a neurobiologist or anything, so I can't really speak too much to that. But just like you have that in your body, you also have them in electrochemical technologies. So with batteries, you have energy storage, right? You can take a battery, move it around, plug it in, and it could power something. But fuel cells are energy converting technologies. So you have to hook up like hydrogen or methane to the fuel cell, and then the fuel cell will convert that hydrogen or methane fuel into electricity. So you get this chemical to electrical connection through electrochemistry. Yeah, that definition just really encapsulates it. And it provided me a lot of just information I did not know about. So I think that's really interesting. And kind of just the basic principle you brought up is like electrolytes and how that builds upon 
I mean, I never thought of that, but it definitely does. It's kind of within like the grasp of electrochemistry. I think knowing what an electrolyte actually does is a great way to understand what electrochemistry is. Like it's a great thing to research. And I think all of us are interested in health and it definitely intersects with that. Yeah. So in your line of work within lithium ion, like battery development, what is your like day-to-day work consist of? Like, what are you mainly working on? So I think I have the coolest job ever because (laughs) I basically get to play in a laboratory. So my days consist of doing project ideation. So I think of hypotheses. Our goal in the end is to make batteries for electric vehicles that are better at performing as well as less expensive than the ones out today. And so to do this, I do a lot of different experiments to understand how those batteries work and how they break and how we can make them better. And so my days, yeah, doing experiments, I actually work in a lab and run experiments and I operate different types of microscopes and spectroscopes to do material analysis and characterization, which is a large part of my specific role. A big part of the company I work for is a tech transfer company, which means that we develop intellectual property like patents that we then license to the large battery makers and automobile companies. I develop patents for those to license. So I have a few patents, a lot of writing reports. It's a mixture of like communication, research, data analysis. That's really cool. And it kind of just shows like you have a diversification of your work and like what you're working on. So like experiments and then writing up that data, obviously, and then like turning patents. And that's also something I want to dive into later on about patents and like the various patents you have. So that's super neat. What are some of the like, this is a broad question, but what are some techniques that kind of you have to do within like the laboratory when you're working on like battery research? So I'll divide the techniques into a couple categories. The first, like I mentioned, I do a lot of material analysis and characterization. And so those techniques are when I use like a microscope to look at a material up close. So I use like scanning electron microscopes or transmission electron microscopes, Fourier transform, infrared spectroscopy, x-ray photoelectron spectroscopy. There's so many different techniques. There are a lot of big words, um, but all of these can look at materials like basically on the micro to nano scale to look at the composition, what it looks like, and all these different properties of the materials themselves. So that's one side. And the other side is the electrochemical techniques. So electrochemical techniques can be used to look at how different processes work inside of a battery and what's going on inside of the battery. And so one phenomenon, you probably heard of resistance, like a resistor in a circuit. Mm So batteries have their own resistances inside. And one way to look up close at these resistances is electrochemical impedance spectroscopy. And this is something I have like a few YouTube videos on on my channel. So if you want to like a silly but real explanation of what it is, you can check that out. There's so many different techniques to use. And that's one reason I really wanted to go into this field. It's because I have so many interests. I, I get bored doing the same thing all the time. But doing material analysis and characterization, there's so many tools and so many things to look at. You just, you never get bored. Yeah. And at least within any like engineering and like invention field you go into, like you're saying, you're constantly learning and figuring out like new discoveries. 
So like that's kind of the awesome thing of like diving into this field is like you're trying to figure out things that haven't really been created yet. Super interesting. Exactly. It's a lot of creative thinking and innovation. And oftentimes I think, oh, somebody's already thought of this idea. And it turns out nobody did. And so it's really taught me that I have my own unique perspective and my own unique background to share um, and my work. And so speaking up when I have an idea, even if somebody may have had it before, a lot of times they don't. And so it's good to share. Yeah. And that's kind of the way we like think of something. And then if you think of like so many famous companies, that's how they were kind of just created and they launched from there like just from a a simple idea and then you turn it into a product. So that kind of goes into like my next question. What's kind of the process for like creating a battery prototype and then putting it into production for it to be like industry use? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So it all starts in a lab. You do a lot of little tests and you find maybe a battery materials and composition that work well together. And then you want to scale it up to large scale production. And so that's when you have to make sure you're using materials and processes that are lower cost. And so the battery itself is like a sandwich. You have like the buns, the bread is are like the electrodes. And then the inside is like the separator and the electrolyte is in there. And so it consists of these layers of materials. And so the processes that go into batteries are like taking graphite or silicon or whatever material and coating it onto like the bread (laughs) then coating it on and then baking it in an oven sometimes or there's different processes for different materials and then you sandwich the whole thing together and you seal it up in its package whether it be like a in a like a double a battery style or the what we call the 18650 lithium-on battery it's like rolled up into like a you know those finger sandwiches with like the tortilla and the cream cheese and it's like a spiral it's kind of like that inside (laughs) of that cylindrical package it's like a pinwheel yes yes and or it could be just a flat prismatic shape depending on the shape you have different processes to package that together and that's basically how you make a battery it's it's just like you're just playing with dirt in a way (laughs) fancy dirt (laughs) I guess in terms of like batteries, you're really looking for something that has like the most energy storage and that's like efficient, right? So would you say the most efficient batteries are the like smaller size ones, like say for instance, like AAA or is it the opposite? The bigger size batteries, they have greater energy storage and they're more efficient. Like how does that kind of like balance work out? So when you just look at a size of a battery, that's a measurement that you would think of in um, power per volume. So like watt hours per, I guess, liter, you know, so it's like the size. And then there's another measurement that's substantial, which is watt hours per kilogram. And so that's the power per weight. So you have power per volume, power per weight. And when it comes to different batteries like AA, AAA, and then you have lithium ion batteries, which actually are different chemistry because you're using different materials inside of the battery, they have different volumetric and gravimetric energy densities, or they have different watt hours per liter, watt hours per kilogram uh, statistics. So like the holy grail right now is a solid state battery that uses just a lithium metal electrode. And that's because when you have pure lithium, you have the highest energy density 
you have the highest amount of lithium in the battery. Um, but there's some challenges to solid state batteries. But then for like AA and AAA, just because they're different sizes, like smaller than a lithium ion battery, doesn't necessarily mean that they have more energy density, like it's denser because they're using a completely different chemistry inside of them. In one of the first models of Tesla's, like Tesla Roadsters, they use like 8,000 lithium ion batteries. And I think it was the 18650, which is a pretty large cylindrical cell. It's like a large AA battery. If you were to use the equivalent energy in AA batteries, you would have probably had to use like an order of magnitude more than that. So like we're talking tens of thousands versus just 8,000. And that's a lot more weight and, so, and a lot more volume. In that respect for vehicles, lithium ion batteries are superior. And that's why we're using those instead of just putting AA batteries into our cars. Right. Yeah. And I want to dive into kind of the advancement of energy materials. And specifically, I want to talk about your YouTube videos because that's kind of like a passion project you have. And I was watching one of your videos on why rose quartz are like pink and like the millions of dollars spent on that research. Could you speak more upon like why that is to like people who've never seen this YouTube video and then why you decided to pick this project to pursue? First of all, you just made my day because I don't <laughs> know anyone who like watches those videos that in depth. <laughs> And those rose quartz videos were just like a silly project that ended up turning into like this surprise story of like what is going on and why are so why is somebody spending millions of dollars to understand why rose quartz is pink and i just a lot of research you know is funded by the government or funded by private industry like there's always somebody who wants to make money or use it for a certain technology at the end of the game so i was like okay well, what's so special about rose quartz so the reason I first started looking at it is because I, I love crystals and I'm not one of those people who use crystals for healing or anything, but I definitely like just how they look. And I thought it'd be fun to use my material science knowledge and my fun with crystals and how I like them kind of to join those two together. Because I think in the science community, if you bring up how you like crystals, it's like people shut you down so quickly. And so I wanted to be someone who straddles between both sides. And so I created the video. First, it was just going to be explaining the, the properties of rose quartz. And then I was just going into go into kind of the how it's representative of self-love and how I wore rose quartz necklace for a time period when I needed to show myself more love and it really helped me in my life. And which I did film, but then I went down this rabbit hole of why is somebody spending so much money to figure out why rose quartz is pink when i was looking into the properties of rose quartz it was just some random website that i found that there was like a controversy over why it's pink and i'm like first of all why would somebody use the word controversy to describe trying to figure out why a mineral is a certain color and that just intrigued me so then i found the actual like research papers this group at caltech had worked on looking into why rose quartz is pink. And as I'm going through these papers, which they use so many techniques that I use in my own research, so it was easy for me to understand them, like transmission electron microscopy and scanning electron microscopy and um, different like etching techniques to etch away certain materials within that rose quartz. As I was reading all those, I'm going, this costs a lot of money and takes a lot of time. 
to use a transmission electron microscope costs anywhere upwards from $130 an hour, not to mention the time to pay the staff to operate them. And so when I was looking at this, all this data, I'm like, this costs like so much money. Who is, who is spending this? And then I found the White Rose Foundation just so mysterious, right? Like the White Rose Foundation, is this like a spiritual community that just needs to know the essence of rose quartz? But long story short, I'll just spoil my videos, but you can go watch them. They go more in depth, but long story short, turns out the former president, I believe, of Apple computers, is that correct? It's been a while. Yes. Michael Scott, his name is Michael, like the office guy, Michael Scott. So he wanted to build this device from Star Trek that can detect minerals just by pointing it at it. That kind of equipment exists, but it's it's big bulky equipment in labs. And so he wanted to make a smaller version, but in order to make a smaller version, you kind of have to have this index of all these minerals and their chemical signatures within the device itself. I think it's called a tricorder in Star Trek. It sounds like one of those things where like you're looking for a metal, a metal detector. Like it sounds like. <laughs> yes, it's a metal detector, but you can just hover it over like a rock and it'll tell you this is granite or this is rose quartz. But in order to figure out if it's rose quartz, you have to know what makes it rose quartz. Like why is it different than regular quartz? And it's it's actually a really interesting chemical process. And there's still mysteries about how these fibers form within the the structure of the crystal and it's actually not a crystal it's pretty disordered so you can't really call it crystal has like an ordered lattice yeah that was a fun couple of videos that sounds so interesting like just hearing about like what you've learned I'm just like wow I, I I've never thought more about quartz than like I don't know way back when you were younger and you would like mine you know, like those places where like you would mine like a bucket or something and you would see all these gems. Those were like the only times I've ever thought of like quartz. Like now just realizing like why it was found out that they're pink is so like super interesting. Yeah, it's I think it's incredible working in material science because even within our batteries, if you take material mined in different parts of the world, even though it's labeled the same exact mineral or compound and it looks identical it could perform differently and it just goes to show you know when it comes to mining no like one mine is the same as another mine no part on earth is the same as a different part on earth and that's just fascinating to me that yeah on earth we have this such a diversity of life but we also have such a diversity of geology and then you're talking about perseverance there's a mission that's going up now is also looking at rocks on Mars and investigating that. So I'm really excited to see the results from that. It's going to be really interesting, like just the discoveries, like they find out, like obviously they're looking for like if there was any sort of, of like life at all. So then like you're saying, if they find out like the various types of like rocks and minerals and just like that, it'll be really cool just to like know about like what they're discovering. Exactly. It really... You know, how I said earlier, like astrophysics and stuff like I wasn't really that interested because it's so far away. Well, now from a material science, from an electrochemist perspective, if you look at a different world, like a, a different planet, it has different temperatures and pressures within that ecosystem and different gravitational pull. And that 
enables different compounds and chemicals to react and form in different ways. And to me, that's completely fascinating. And fields like astrobiology and astrochemistry look into that. And it's like, oh, maybe I should have stuck with <laughs> with the space stuff. But but no, I mean, it's it's all very interesting. So so many cool stuff in science. I want to talk about like your work at JPL and like within NASA. What was like a favorite project you worked on? Yeah, so I was there for a full year working part time. And the projects I was working on were developing fuel cell catalysts. So catalysts within the fuel cell is what basically converts the energy source to the electricity. And platinum is a very common fuel cell catalyst. But as you probably know, platinum is very expensive. And so that's part of the reason why we don't see fuel cells everywhere today is because it's hard to find a replacement for that catalyst. So that's what I was working on. My project was using different electrochemical tests in order to study how effective platinum substitute was to converting energy. So the outcome of it, they published a paper a few years later, so I couldn't really talk in depth about this research, but I think it was in 2016 or 2017, I noticed that they published a paper on this research. And I was in the acknowledgments under like, and student interns. I was like, that's me. <laughs> so I don't know if any of the data I actually took ended up in the paper, but I definitely did a lot of, I think, the preliminary tests that they needed and data analysis they needed for that project. So then if platinum is like the most expensive, what was like a good alternative? So we were looking at nanostructured films made of platinum, but also other transition metals like zirconium. And there were a couple others, but I remember the zirconium one. And so with platinum, you just have a smooth surface, but with nanostructured materials, it changes the surface of that. And what I found so fascinating was the interface is what's most important. And it's the most complicated and complex thing to study and understand as well. Like platinum, it's actually arranged in like a crystalline structure. And so depending on the face that's facing the rest of the fuel cell, uh, that reaction surface, depending on whether you're looking at, they call it a Miller indices. So there's like the 111 surface, the 100 surface, and I'll let you look up Miller indices in your own time. But it's basically how the atoms are arranged. So based on the arrangement of the atoms, it'll react different. If you put a nanostructured material on top of that surface, it can change the properties of it drastically and even make it better. That's really interesting. And I feel like I'm going to say that like this whole episode, but like everything I'm just hearing from you, it's very like knowledgeable and like it's something that I don't have like experience with in this field. So it's really just, it's really cool hearing about like all the different discoveries and like just various like applications. There's so much to know and it's, I'm early in my career and so there's still so much I'm learning. And if you adopt that like learner's mindset in any field, like that's just the way to go because you'll never know everything. So you just got to Take it one project, one challenge of it at a time and learn as you go. Yeah, absolutely. The last part I kind of want to dive into is focusing on like the patents you've had on your inventions and kind of your like various passions. We kind of just talked about the STEM Thrive Guides. I kind of want to hear about what made you create this business and how did you come up with the idea? Yes. So the STEM Thrive Guides, 
I officially started working on it in May of 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic, basically. So initially, I wanted the STEM Thrive Guides to be a video series. And this is one of those ideas I come up with kind of in the middle of the night and I have to jot it down in my idea book. Yeah. (laughs) And I just wrote down a bunch of videos that I thought of filming because I've been harassed a lot throughout my career. And I've always worked in male dominant spaces where I'm the minority. And with each instance that I've had to navigate, I've learned so much about how to navigate the next one, right? And so having been through a career 12 years long now, almost 13, I think, when I wrote down these video ideas, they were all related to something I had to learn in order to get where I am with my level of confidence and my level of, I can handle this. If if someone harasses me, I know what to do now. And I know how to care for myself so that I'm doing my best pretty much at all times, you know? And so I wrote down all these video ideas and I categorized them into three groups, survive, grow, and thrive. And that became, and I titled it the STEM Thrive Guide. And it was going to be a YouTube video series. And so a few months later, I got my camera on Black Friday. I got all the equipment I needed. I started filming in December of 2019. A few months later, after like I had filmed probably eight episodes and I realized, you know, COVID hit. I took a step back and I was like, I don't know if doing this video format is the most effective way to communicate this information to other people. And having filmed all the videos, I realized, oh, this is all basically professional development curricula. I was also on YouTube a lot looking at videos of like how to make online courses. So I was like, wow, this would be much more easily communicated in an online course format. I realized nothing like this exists. Like there's currently no support for people who are navigating bias, harassment, and discrimination, like on an individual level. And so I knew it had to exist. And so I started the STEM Thrive Guide. So I filmed throughout my quarantine time (laughs) and released the courses in October. That's really awesome to hear how you kind of just took your experience and channeled that passion to like an idea. And I think relating like as a female in STEM, we are in the male-dominated fields, and oftentimes you will be the only woman in the room, and it's hard. Like, when you're used to just having other women support you, sometimes you don't have that. So kind of just having that resource. People are interested in this. They can definitely check out your website for that and kind of just take on this professional development to really just understand that, like you're saying, you can kind of grow out of the situation and ultimately, like, bolster your confidence. Exactly. Like, I think it's really unfortunate right now that the way like sexual harassment prevention and is taught in companies and in universities, it's kind of like, if this happens to you, like contact HR or contact your superior. And unfortunately, it's not that straightforward and it's not that easy. Uh, HR is not there to help the employees. It's there to prevent lawsuits from the business itself. And so if you understand that where you have control and where you don't have control in the situation, it makes it a lot easier to navigate the situations. And I think right now the statistics show that more women leave a company than stay and report harassment. And so people don't feel comfortable speaking up. They don't feel confident. They feel afraid. And my courses are all about working through that feeling of fear and improving your own confidence so that you feel like you can speak up and advocate for yourself. And then I provide actual like process and procedure 
that I use and I've used to reach a resolution more, more than once so that you can follow those step-by-step -step guide in order to reach a resolution in your scenario. And even after you take the course, I also have a bunch of mentors and coaches who I've talked to and they fully support anyone going through any difficult situations and want to help them. And so I can direct you to one-on-one -on -one support. Yeah. I think just being able to have actionable steps to get you to a said goal is like the best way to be able to kind of just churn out results more so than being kind of passive and just saying like, oh, this is how you do it. But instead you're saying this is how you can accomplish it. It's unfortunate that this isn't taught in any kind of professional development setting because it's been so crucial for me to get where I am in my career now. If I had succumbed to some of the gaslighting that I've had in my past, I would have thought, oh, I'm not cut out to be a researcher. I'm not cut out to be a scientist. And I wouldn't be where I am today. And I think a lot of people hear that feedback, get that kind of, you're master's material, you're not PhD material, or you are better in communication than in science research, or you're better in education. You should be a teacher. A lot of women are pushed into more communication teaching roles and away from more research roles. And that was happening to me, but I was able to recognize it and be like, no, like this is what I want to do. And then go ahead and find the support, find the environment that would support me in achieving those goals. So once I think these skills are taught more as professional development, it'll erase the taboo around talking about harassment, discrimination, hopefully. And then we can actually like work on systemic change in our workplaces. So this is just part of the big, there's so many people working on this problem right now, and I'm getting to work with all of them in my own business. So that's been incredible. Yeah, definitely. I want to segue into your patents. So I was reading on your website how you have filed for 11. And like, that is so awesome to be able to like have said that. So what are some of the patents you have for? And what was the process like? So yes, I'm an inventor of 11 patents. And three of those are actually published. And you can look at them online, Google my name on Google Scholar, and they'll pop up. But just briefly, a couple of them have to do with the materials inside of the battery. I made a discovery that shows how a material performs better than a different material. And so we were able to patent that. So my other patents that I filed have to do with different materials and processes as well. Those are basically the two types of patents that my company comes out with. So I guess whenever you were thinking of these ideas and you kind of obviously like scoped them out and kind of perfected them, what was the process? Like I I've never filed a patent before. So after you have your idea and you have like thoroughly thought of it, do you submit like, I, I guess, what do you even submit with it? The idea, like what kind of document do you submit? So when you work in a big company, it's really easy. What you have is a patent disclosure form. So you just write down what is unique about whatever it is you're patenting. So you put any graphs that show data on the materials, for instance, or describe the process and there's certain language that you need to use. And then I work with our legal representative at our company who works with lawyers to make the whole thing and submit it. And so my portion is only the research itself and then just documenting what the idea is and providing that data. I think whenever you try to submit something, you're usually thinking of like a POC, like a proof of concept perhaps, but I guess it's, it really just depends on the type of patent you're submitting for and what you're trying to submit for that. 
I used to overthink patents. So I used to think, oh, I have to come up with this super new invention. And, and of course it does have to be a new invention, but a lot of inventions are just like an extra step, a new addition on something that was previously built, right? You don't really have to prove out the concept to get a patent. You just have to pay money and it has to be new. It doesn't have to work. And so what I try to do in my own work though, is not just patent any old idea. I do like to prove them out, but a lot of times you don't have the resources to fully prove out something. And so that's why when you work at a tech transfer company, you want to partner with larger companies to really prove out that technology. In the world of private industry, oftentimes they'll verge on the side of publishing more patents than they're actually working on just because you want to protect all of the stuff that you are coming up with before somebody else may patent it. Kind of a race of who can patent idea first. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, that's all the questions I have. And Jill, thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, This was really fun. And it's awesome to hear that you're interviewing so many people who are passionate about so many different topics. Like I really enjoy listening to other podcasts that you have done. So I'm excited to hear more from you. Thanks for listening to the Multi-Passioner Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode that Jill and I recorded. And it was such an action-packed just really knowledge dump of information. And I hope it got your mind just curious and that you learned a lot of valuable just information about electrochemistry. If you could give a review on Apple Podcasts, that would mean a lot. Stay tuned for a new episode on Mondays.